Jesus would just be one of us and part of us. Um, And so when you consider that in the eyes of the Jewish people, Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth, or at least those who thought they knew who he was, thought he was Jesus of Nazareth, some guy from Galilee, which wasn't even a particularly um, uh, pure or holy area. It was a kind of a mixed area. Lots of uh, non-Jews lived there, and so it was kind of looked down upon. And so if you knew that Jesus came from Galilee, that he came from Nazareth, which was not a particularly dynamic or exciting or certainly a, a standout town in terms of God's dealings with the people, if you knew that the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem and you didn't know anything about Jesus' birth circumstances, if you knew that uh, Jesus' disciples were fishermen and tax collectors, then you could easily, if you were a pious Jew and you moved in the right circles and you had the right connections and you had the right standing in society, you could easily be forgiven for asking the question, who is this upstart? Who is this guy? He just looks like an ordinary one of us. He comes from a two-bit town of no distinction. He hasn't got uh, particular family connections or standing. What is there to commend him? And so, it's easy for us to retro-read and think, that was Jesus. How could you not know? Well, easily, I think easily in the flesh. If you only looked with the eyes of the flesh and you didn't listen with the voice of the Spirit. So chapter 7 of John and then chapter 8, apart from the wee bit, the extra passage about the woman caught in adultery, all take place in Jerusalem, all take place around the Feast of Tabernacles, all take place around the time when people were celebrating God's rescue rescue from slavery in Egypt. Don't forget, that's what the Feast of Tabernacles was about. It was a celebration of God. Well, I suppose Passover is a celebration of the rescue, but Tabernacles was a remembrance of how God kept them through 40 years in the wilderness and provided for them, leading them into a promised land. So tuck that wee thought away. Right, we're going to get back to the passage. So we're going to read today from verses 31 through to 59 in John chapter 8. And in the New International Version, all these sections are broken up with headings that all begin with the word dispute. (laughs) Dispute over Jesus' testimony. Dispute over who Jesus is. Dispute over whose children Jesus' opponents are. And then in the final section, Jesus claims about himself. So this is all um, contention and argument. Let's read from verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. 
I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the works of your own father. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Amen. May God bless his word to us today. We're going to hold that thought or those thoughts, those words. And uh, I'm going to ask Megan just to play the uh, little video. When we hear the word slave, then we understandably and particularly when we see that kind of context and are aware of the extent of slavery that still exists in the world, we, we think about that kind of slavery, and, and we should. Jesus talks in these passages about slavery and about freedom. Yeah. And we will think a little bit more about the kind of slavery that the International Justice Mission is existing to combat and to uh, counter, to set people free. But we need to 
look at what Jesus was teaching here and ask the other questions. Because it's too easy for us to imagine that uh, there are those people who are slaves, and we, because we live in the free West, or because we're not enslaved particularly um, by uh, oppressors in that very literal sense, are not people who are enslaved. And Jesus addresses these words, and it says, interestingly, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said. No, it says to the Jews who had believed him. And then he goes on to take them to task. So these are Jews who had once believed him, who had followed him. But I suspect that this is a gathering of, of some of the people who, having believed, left Jesus. If you remember when we read John chapter 6, there was a verse there where Jesus was giving the teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And we understand that in terms of, of communion and in terms of, of just the spiritual feasting on Jesus' death and resurrection, believing in it. But of course, they heard it as cannibalism and were offended and it says in verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And so there were people who had no doubt seen the miracles, heard the good news stories, believed in Jesus, and yet were offended by this teaching, and so they deserted him. And so I wonder if it's this group that Jesus is speaking to, because they don't speak to him as believers. They speak to him as those who have uh, reestablished their identity somewhere else. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So again, just calling to them, in case you ever thought Jesus washed his hands of those people. He called them to uh, hold to his teaching and to know his teaching and to prove that they were his disciples by holding fast to his teaching. And I suppose that's true of all of us, right? I mean, we can come here to church on Sunday and uh, to one extent or another, we will put on a show for people round about us. I very much doubt that as you sat over lunch, you poured out your deepest, darkest secrets and told people all the things that were really going on in your life, your fears, your worries, your hopes, your stresses and distresses. Of course you didn't. And it's not that you wouldn't or that you might under certain circumstances, but broadly speaking, we, we present ourselves in a certain way. But of course, the challenge for us is to hold to the teaching once we walk out the front door or the back door, depending on what time you leave. Once we walk back out into the world, then the, 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 the game is on, to coin a phrase. There's the challenge. There's the challenge about holding to his teaching. Because simply being in a place, sitting under teaching, is not the same as actually carrying it in your heart and letting it flow out through your hands and feet and eyes and ears and mouths and other places. And Jesus says, if you hold to his teaching, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. And so we then uh, get into this uh, big debate about who these people think they are. I asked you at the beginning to think of three words that you might use to sum up who you are. And, and I don't know uh, what three words you chose. I don't know whether you chose words that describe your personality or words that describe your faith or words that describe your, um, where you were born, what culture, what country perhaps you grew up in. How do you define yourself? How do you define yourself? How do you understand yourself? And of course, we all need to have a sense of who we are and where we came from. Because otherwise, it would just be to be stateless, to be wandering through life with no anchors or no sense of ourselves. But of course, this dialogue which Jesus has is a dialogue and a dispute with these uh, Jews who have decided that they're not going to identify themselves any longer as belonging to Jesus. And so they've had to go back to where they were before in terms of knowing who they are, knowing in terms of what it is that defines them. And for them, they were uh, taking their stand on the fact that they were descended from Abraham. They were Jewish people. And Jesus said, if, if you hold to my teaching, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And most of their reactions are just that, reactions, reactionary. Every time he says something, they, they, they kind of go off on one. They're offended and they're outraged because it's very easy for us to be offended and outraged and take offense at people. But they weren't really listening and didn't have the understanding to know what Jesus was really saying. There is a certain irony that Jesus says to these people, the truth will set you free. And then they answered saying, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. Well, they clearly dipped out of history because clearly there's a lot of their own history they were forgetting, even in that statement. The nation of Israel started off, of course, as slaves in Egypt, and Moses led them out. But then, of course, during the period of the exile, they were slaves under the Assyrian Empire, they were slaves under the Babylonian Empire, they were then slaves under the Persian Empire, and now, currently, at the time where they're speaking, they are enslaved in the Roman Empire. So quite where they think they've never been slaves of anyone is hard to fathom. But of course, that's the kind of blindness that we're all prone to. I've never been slave of anyone or anything. And yet I suspect if we're honest, we're all slaves to some degree or another of things, right? How easily could you manage without your phone for a week? How easily could you manage without coffee for a week? Fill in the dots. You know, there are ways in which we define and understand ourselves, and, and some of them are 
you know, that's a bit lighthearted, perhaps. For the Jewish people here, their identity was that they were uh, sons of Abraham. And in their head, they'd never been slaves of anyone because they were a, a cut above, a better class of people. We are Abraham's descendants. And we might have been enslaved in earthly terms, but in terms of our lineage, we've, we've, uh, we are pure. But actually, they were enslaved the same as all of us, to one degree or another, can find ourselves enslaved. We can find ourselves enslaved to ambition. We can find ourselves enslaved to fear. We can find ourselves enslaved to uh, money. We can find ourselves enslaved to work. We can find ourselves enslaved to the words and the voices and the opinions of other significant people who have perhaps spoken into or over our lives in the past, who've said things that have stuck. We can find ourselves enslaved to bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, where our attitude falls short of what Jesus wants because our hearts have been taken captive by something that we cannot or will not let go. All of us, to one degree or another, outside of Jesus, are enslaved to sin. And yet these Jewish people understand themselves as free. And yet, as Jesus pointed out to them, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You might kid yourselves that as descendants of Abraham, you've never been slaves, but you have. But actually, all of us, to one degree or another, have been enslaved by sin. And the offer and the invitation of the good news of Jesus Christ is an invitation to know Jesus and His truth, to know Jesus and His power, to know Jesus and His life, and to be set free. To be set free. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Slaves, to sin or to anything else, don't have a permanent place in the family. But a son belongs to it forever. When we heard the, watched the little IGM video clip, and I am increasingly drawn to and moved by the work that IGM is doing, we find a very obvious and, and simple and massively important mission and ministry to people who are taken captive. And part of IGM's uh, mission and driver is, is to see people, yes, set free and rescued, but also to see them healed and brought into wholeness and, and fullness of life. Andy Bevan, who is the Scottish director, described to me when I had a chat with him of just how important times and seasons of just prayer and worship are for them in the office in Edinburgh, that every day starts just with a time of devotion and prayer and listening to God 
and listening for his direction. Because God's heart for people who are enslaved in brick factories in India or people who are enslaved by their ambitions and their desires and their competition and all the things in this world of apparent freedom is to set us free. All of us, in one way or another, are enslaved or have been. And God's ambition for you is to know and to find your freedom. How do we find our freedom? How do we find our freedom? Well, freedom is largely about God saying something about you, to you, and over you that trumps and redefines and breaks the stranglehold and power of everything else that anyone has ever said. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. There are many people who will hold you captive, many things that will want to hold you captive, but if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And that's a beautiful and powerful statement. But it's one that only begins to work as you and I believe it and receive it and actually live out of it. Actually live out of the place of knowing that because God has called you by your name, because Jesus declares you free if you believe in him, and continue in his teaching as one of his disciples, then what he has to say about you sets you free. Sets you free from this society's ambitions and expectations. Sets you free from the need to stress or worry about where stuff's coming from. Because he says, if you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, his kingdom and his righteousness, all the other things that you need will be added as well. He sets you free from the words that other people may have spoken over you in the past because he says other things about you. And at the end of the day, whose word carries more weight? What Jesus says about you? What his death and resurrection say about you in declaring you forgiven and free? Or the words and the voices of the people he will not give you permission to be free. You see, it comes down to whose voice you're listening to and whose words you're believing. And there are many, many, many voices in this world that will shape and define you and tell you who you are and what you have to do to fit in or to belong or to be like them or to make it or to arrive. But actually, all of those voices are just other broken, enslaved human voices. And actually, the only voice that you need to receive and I need to receive in the depth of my spirit is the voice of the Father who says, I gave my Son for you because I love you. Who says, I gave my Son to set you free from the guilt of sin and condemnation. I gave my Son to set you free from everything that everyone 
or anyone has done or said or requires of you or wants to constrain you with, if the Son sets you free, well, that's the trump card. That's the one that beats all the others. And whatever anybody else has said or does say or is saying, they are null and void in face of the power of Jesus Christ and his final truth. Of course, the difference between the Jews that Jesus was talking to, these descendants of Abraham, who were preoccupied with their status and their identity and and what they knew about themselves and their history, their pride, their sense of self-esteem. Who is this upstart Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter's son from two-bit Nazareth in Galilee? Who is he? We are God's chosen people. And because of their pride and their self-sufficiency, because they believed that on their own and by their inheritance and their heritage and so on, they could make it on their own. They could not hear or see or receive or recognize Jesus' words. They took offense at him. We, we, we tend to live in a, a much softer, well, in some respects. People are less... No, actually, I'm going to rescind that statement before I make it. Sometimes... People are nicer to us than perhaps is good for us. (laughs) Let me say that. Probably some of the best and most effective voices in my life and in yours have been the ones that in love have told me the truth. (laughs) And sometimes the temptation can be too soft soap. Jesus here is telling them the truth. He's not telling them the truth to goad them. He's not telling the truth to wind them up, but he is telling them the truth to challenge their identity and to tell them that resting in that identity is going to get you nowhere. Resting in that earthly identity, that cultural heritage, that religious legacy, it's going to do you no good. In the same way, that having a membership certificate from a church or having a solid Christian background in your family or having a a good inheritance or bank balance or a safe job or whatever, none of these things, none of these things are it. And so the Jews on the one hand could not see or hear or receive the truth which would set them free, could not receive the givenness of God's grace and goodness because they were too full of who they were and what they'd done or what they, uh, what they thought they were. Over against the proud and the independent, however, there were those who heard and received what Jesus had to offer because they knew their need. I'm going to ask Helen if she would just come up and and read a little story, which is, again, from the International Justice Mission. And it's just the account of one little family who were rescued.
When Damru and Hamanti first became pregnant, they were thrilled. But three months later, after their daughter was born, she ran a high fever. With no medical facility nearby, they had to wait until morning to be transported to a doctor 20 kilometers away. An hour after they arrived at the hospital, their little girl died. Crushed, but determined to start a family, Hamanti became pregnant again. This time, their baby boy only lived a matter of minutes. The word grief hardly begins to explain, explain the pain Hamanti and Damri felt. So many in our world know this sorrow all too well. Wanting a fresh start, Damri borrowed money from relatives to begin construction on a new home. When Hamanti became pregnant a third time, they were overjoyed but cautious. Soon after the construction and their home was completed, they welcomed a sweet, happy little boy named Durga into the world. Full of love and gratitude for this precious gift, they breathed a sigh of relief. Despite their joy, they still needed enough income to pay back their lenders, so the small family found work in a city with their teenage nephew, Bujbal, who joined them. They thought luck was on their side when they were offered a well-paying job at a poultry farm in a state nearly a thousand miles away. However, they soon realized the good job was a lie. They were allowed to keep their clothes and cell phones, but were immediately put to work scrubbing bird droppings from the floors and walls, all while their baby son lay nearby. The farm owner vaguely promised to build their living quarters later. But it never happened, Hamanti says. We were forced to live inside the coop. When Damru and Hamanti were done feeding, watering and disinfecting all the 6,000 chickens on the farm every day, they were constantly worried about their son. With toxic chemicals surrounding them, little Durga regularly suffered from diarrhea, colds, coughs, and skin allergies. When it came time for bed, the family slept in a rundown barn with thousands of chickens. They arranged plastic sacks to keep them from sleeping on the, the wet, rotten ground. Scorpions and snakes would move near the family while they slept. Hamanti remembers, I used to put my son in between sacks of chicken feed to protect him from getting bitten by them. Every night we used to go to sleep not knowing if we would wake up in the, the next morning. After losing two children, they could not stand the idea of losing another in this awful place. When Hamanti learned her mother-in-law was seriously ill, she pleaded with the owner of the farm to go and see her. By some miracle, Bujbal and Durga were allowed to accompany her, but Damri, her husband, was forced to stay behind and work. At a train station, two IJ, IJM informants, trained to, sp to spot signs of trafficking, saw Hamanti and noticed how distraught she appeared. When they began asking her about her situation, she was reluctant to talk with them, since she was afraid of being tricked again. However, Bujbal spoke up, and investigators and government officials were immediately called. The race to rescue Damru was on. Hamanti managed to reach him on a mobile phone and told him about the plan to rescue him and reunite their family. But in his mind, he only imagined two or three men would arrive for the rescue. He says, I was awestruck at what I saw. Three vehicles full of full of people reached the farm. There were so many of them. I cannot forget that moment. Here, Hamanti had come to save me. If you were to meet Damri and Hamanti today, you would walk down a narrow, dusty road in the Indian state of Odisha. Their village is small, and their home is plain and clean. Hamanti carries little Durga on her waist and drops him off at preschool before heading to work at a local farm. Durga yells, bye-bye, in a sweet, high-pitched squeal. Today, you would meet two brave, resilient people, free from slavery, free to raise their child in peace, free to live a life in joy.
I find it moving and exciting to hear stories like that, which talk about the freedom that comes to those who know they need it and ask for it. And in that very obvious and literal example of slaves being set free, there were people whose life and living circumstances the injustice of uh, being tricked and lied to and so on and taken into slavery meant that they uh, were obvious slaves in a human sense, exciting and uh, reassuring, I suppose, to know that through IGM and many other agencies as well, that that obvious slavery can be brought to an end. The slaves in the story that Jesus spoke to, of course, could not see their slavery. They could not see that they needed the help of Jesus in order to escape from the uh, self-confidence and the self-righteousness of who they were in order to know the Father. They claimed God as their Father, of course, but in their heart attitude, In their heart attitude, they were plotting, some of them, to kill Jesus. And that's the challenging discrepancy that we all face, isn't it? That we claim to know God as our Father, but the challenge is what happens when we go out of this building. The challenge is where our identity is truly to be found. Because I, as I get older, I'm increasingly Uh, amazed and excited at the extent and the depth and the vastness and the power of the freedom that Jesus offers to us. And yes, above all and most profoundly, the freedom that Jesus offers you and me is the freedom from the consequences of our choices, our sins, our shame, our deliberate Uh, acts of rebellion. And so the bottom line is that Jesus was holding out to these people an invitation to freedom. And yet they couldn't hear it. They couldn't receive it because they thought they knew and they knew best. And so we continue as Christians to go outside these walls and I hope to seek to take the opportunities that arise for us to tell people that whatever triumphs or successes, whatever securities, whatever self-confidence they may have in life, it's not going to endure. (laughs) It's all fading away. And actually, the only thing that matters beyond the confines of this life is that we leave it knowing Jesus, who sets us free, who sets us free from sin, who sets us free from slavery to our identity. Who sets us free from slavery to our identity. Because whatever you think you are or have to be, I don't think there are any such limits or limitations in Jesus. I've said this many an occasion, but I had no idea when I, aged 15, asked Jesus into my life what the ramifications of that decision would be for my life. 
And actually, the older I get, the more I realize that actually the only thing that is stopping Jesus doing more with us are the limitations that we impose. (laughs) That actually the gospel is an invitation to freedom that says, if you trust me and invite me in to every place, to every position, to every identity, to every broken, hurting place, every memory, then either I will bring healing or I will bring strength and courage. Ruth and I went through the town of L'Aquila in central Italy a few years ago, and we went there because it was nine years after a massive earthquake that had hit L'Aquila. And we went to see if you could see any trace whatsoever of the earthquake that had taken place, which was front page news for about three or four days. It was a massive earthquake. It happened through the night. Many people died. There was a whole student halls of residence that just collapsed, and about 300 students lost their lives. It was terrible. And we went imagining that nine years later on, um, there might be the odd crack here or there, but pretty much it would be rebuilt. How wrong we were. I don't know whether it was just Italy or just the scale of the devastation, but the whole center of L'Aquila was a forest of cranes. And many buildings had been rebuilt, but many of them were still uh, very obviously, seriously at risk. (laughs) Massive cracks, uh, bits missing from them, And, and many of them beautiful historic buildings. But what they had where they were clad in this incredible metal superstructure that crisscrossed and braced and was basically an engineering marvel that was holding these buildings that could crumble and collapse uh, together and making them safe and strong and enabling them to stand until such time as they could be fully or properly repaired. And in a sense, that's the image that comes to my mind in thinking about what Jesus does when we invite him into those broken places. Yes, he may heal and, and, and set us free. But I understand, and I'm not medical, and you can, uh, you can tell me if you know better than this, but broken bones are stronger once they're, uh, once they're uh, re-healed, once they're, they're healed and they're, they're, they're rejoined. There's a strength in the bone uh, in that particular broken place. Jesus invites us as he was holding out this revelation, this truth of who he was, but they couldn't see it and they couldn't receive it because of who they thought they were. And they didn't know that they were slaves. And they had just upped the ante all the more, saying, you're possessed by a devil. You're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. They dug deep to find two of the worst things they could accuse Jesus of being. And one of them was a Samaritan. That's probably pretty offensive in the ears of a Jew. You're a Samaritan and demon-possessed. But Jesus said, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking, and hear this for yourselves, I'm not seeking glory for myself. But there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Jesus did not come to seek his own glory, did not come on some vanity project or mission, but came in order 
to set before you and me a word that will give freedom and life if we will, and as we, let it into every area and part of our lives. And so Jesus' invitation is to find freedom from sin. And because of that freedom from death and any fear, I told you about my friend Aileen last Sunday, if you were here, who went to be with Jesus. And so we celebrated her life with color and joy, and yes, tears and sadness on Friday. But there is something profoundly beautiful about the funeral of a Christian who has lived their life well for Jesus. Something beautiful and powerful about being able to read some of the magnificent passages of Scripture that declare the certainty of the resurrection and the hope of the life beyond life that Jesus has prepared for us. And so, yes, freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from slavery to the identities that might otherwise define us or hold us back. And whatever words float around your mind, I'm this, I'm that, then Jesus' word has the power to break and dispel them because his is the final voice. Freedom from the earthly things that enslave us. And we've seen and heard the literal examples for people in the world. But ask yourselves what the things in your world might be that might be less obvious. Freedom to be a new creation. Freedom to be a new creation. No longer held back by the past. No longer held back by the the now even. Because I believe that the person who sincerely and passionately believes and says to the Lord, here I am, take me, do with me what you will, send me wherever you want, use me howsoever you will. I absolutely and utterly believe that if you pray and can pray that prayer with sincerity and passion, then Jesus will and can answer it in ways that sitting here right now, you cannot begin to conceive or imagine. You see, the only thing that holds back the people of God is either our comfort in the places where we are or our lack of faith that there is or could be a more and a bigger and a greater. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that freedom may keep you in Glasgow. That freedom may send you to the other ends of the earth. But whatever that freedom does, it will be a freedom in which you will find a richness and a fulfillment and a joy and a power and a life. And the only thing that holds us back is either doubt or being too comfortable where we are. That like the descendants of Abraham, we don't need to believe that Jesus has got much extra to offer us because we're actually all right, thank you, as we are. But you see, I believe Jesus needs and wants an army of his people. The fields are white unto harvest, yet the workers are few. Pray that the Lord will send out the workers into the harvest field. And that harvest field may be evangelism. It might be justice work. It might be uh, bearing witness in your workplace. It might be uh, healing. It might be compassion. 
It's not for me to imagine all the ways it might be. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What does free indeed look like in your life? And is there a freer that you need to embrace? Are there words you need to invite Jesus in to break the power of? Is there an apathy or a lethargy settled over your life that this will do for now and it will be fine? Because I believe that if we are willing to go all out with and for Jesus, there there is no limit to where He can take us or how He might use us for the joy of the fulfillment that we will experience in being partners with Him in His kingdom and in seeing the glory that will come to Him and the incredible fulfillment that will come to us. Let's pray together.